Hey everyone, Celtic here. Just a quick note before we get started. Today's episode was our first time using the Anchor app, and as I'm sure you'll be able to tell, the levels are a little uneven. Still, I'm very happy with how this turned out, and I'm looking forward to us growing with each episode to bring you a quality show during these difficult times. As they say, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. With that said, sit back, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy. I'm Rob Celtic, and this is Drinking and Dance at the End of the World. inaugural episode of Drinking and Dance at the End of the World. I am your host, Rob Celtic, and with me today, I am honored to have my first guest. His name is DeAndre Carroll. He is the uh, founder of the Funkinetic Project. Um, He is a staple and elder of the Denver street dance community, and he also has the best voted dreadlocks in said community which isn't really saying anything because as previously stated before um denver is wakanda for white people but in any case deandre welcome to the show thank you thank you very much um so the concept is simple um i take a um interesting dancer uh that i want to know more about and we share a drink uh and just talk about the state of the dance world which right now is um Pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, DeAndre, uh, what do you have to drink today? Uh, I am drinking some Bigelow Orange Spice Tea. Um, it's it's kind of hard to say that it's my favorite drink, but it's one of my favorites. Uh, I like tea. I'm pretty much a teetotaler, so uh, no alcohol for me. Uh, Excellent. There, there are very few teas that I consider bad tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's pretty much it. Solid. Yeah, and that's uh, that brings up a good point. Um, I want to make it clear that you do not have to drink alcohol to participate in this show. We are very much open to uh, sharing kombucha and tea, and coffee, etc., etc., or just have a glass of water. It's all good. I, however, am drinking a Moscow Mule in a can, or I will huh. in a second. Ah, there we go. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, so uh, we also urge on the show to please drink responsibly. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let's get started. So, uh, DeAndre, how did you start dancing? Well, that's that's an interesting question, um, and there are a couple of answers to that. So, social dancing, I think I grew up really pretty much in the fabric of that. Uh, I was a teen in the 80s. Uh, and so dancing is really something you did at the school socials or at family gatherings or in your basement. Uh, I was really kind of a late bloomer, so I didn't do a lot of dancing outside of my house. Uh, every now and again at the socials, yes. Uh, that was really kind of my way of letting loose. I've always been a fan of movement, and I've always loved moving, um, but didn't really, didn't really officially get into dance until much later. So like other, other teens in my generation, you know, teens and preteens, 
in this part of the country, popping was all the rage. Uh, really? even, even though b-boying and b-girling was something that you saw nationally, uh, there were very few b-boys and b-girls in Colorado, uh, at least in the part of town where I lived. I want to qualify that. So a lot of the dance, uh, when you start looking at like street styles with the vocabulary, uh, uh, popping was the more popular thing. Um, however, uh, to, to really kind of identify where a, a more serious turn uh, happened for me with dance, uh, I would go to 1993, uh, and I was a student at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Okay. And I had been taking some time off from school and had just started going back to school. Um, and there was a man by the name of Enoch Boyd, who was a graduate student in the theater and dance department there. And he was actually working on his master's project, which was a, 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 a dance concert about black history through dance. Um, and so when I came back to school that year, uh, I decided I wanted to take a dance class to keep in shape. Uh, I had uh, a history in martial arts leading up to then. Uh, and I had been reading and knew that dancers develop like a lot of the same capabilities uh, mm-hmm. or, or foundation that martial artists do. And it was it was just something that I wanted to, to supplement my training with. Yeah. Uh, and so I decided to take a dance class. And so I took a, a, a jazz dance class uh, at CU Boulder in the theater of, uh, of, of in their department of theater and dance. Uh-huh. So one day after class, uh, I decided to just kind of walk through the building and just get uh, a look at where I was. I was a I was a, a natural sciences student. I was a molecular cellular developmental biology student at the university. So being in, on the artistic side of campus, it was really kind of a newer environment to me. Uh, even though I had an arts background, and we can go into that later. Yeah. Uh, but I I walked around the department. And I happened to pass by uh, an office where Enoch was actually consulting with his MFA, uh, his his uh, his mentor, his MFA mentor, mm-hmm. uh, and his faculty advisor. And right when I walked by, they stopped talking, and I was just like, "Oh, am I in a part of a building that I shouldn't be in?" So I just kind of started like tiptoeing away. Uh, and so Enoch came out of the room and sort of chased me down and asked me who I was, and I told him exactly what I told you—that I was taking dance and just kind of walking around the building. And he told me about what he was doing with his MFA concert. Uh, and so then he asked me if I would be willing to be a part of the concert. And I didn't really have to have any dance experience. He said he would teach me everything I needed to know from the ground up. I, I thought about it and I was just kind of like, you know, there, I was at CU at a time where there weren't like a whole lot of black students on campus. And mm-hmm. so I, I really wanted to be supportive of other black students doing things on campus, you know, especially something like this. And I was just like, you know, okay, yeah, I, I can give this a shot. Um, so I showed up and watched his rehearsal, uh, decided, okay, yeah, I could do this. And so he put me in and really started teaching me all the choreography that I needed. And so we came to uh, an advisor review of his concert mm-hmm. and uh, his, his mentor, Letitia Williams, uh, who was his faculty advisor, uh, 
saw me dancing and you know Enoch had me dancing really more towards the back and she was saying you know he's really fantastic you should move him towards the front and Enoch had passed that on to me uh, and and so Enoch changed some of the blocking to to move me into a more prominent position towards the front uh -huh. um, and I, I had a lot of fun doing that uh, you know he did like a lot of different styles he was doing modern and Haitian Dunham and some West African dance uh, and I can't remember specifically the, the culture in West Africa where the dance was from. But, um, you know, so like I, I kept dancing with him. And then a couple months into, into rehearsing, in a, in a short while before production, one of the other members of the ensemble for the dance concert uh, told me about this group called Harambe. And I had seen Harambe, you know, being a CU student, uh, you know, they were they were run by Letitia Williams. And it, it was an all female group. Uh, you know, they were an all female dance group that performed mostly dances of West Africa. Uh, and so she had asked, uh, you know, when I was going to audition for it, uh, there was another gentleman that was actually in the in the production that I was in, Vargas Mason. Um, and he was uh, a student in theater and dance. And so she asked both of us, you know, when we were going to audition for Harambe. And I was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know that I have that type of coordination and talent to do that sort of thing. <laughs> been moved up to like center stage in that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just like, you know, there was, I, I, had, um, I had really kind of a shaky history when it came to uh, feedback and how other people perceived me as a dancer. And that, that's a story we can go into later. Um, but, you know, I was, I was happy to be where I was and I was good to stay in my lane. Um, you know, but so I, I got this request and, and I thought about it. And so I decided to actually go ahead and audition, um, audition for the company. And that, I, I auditioned for the company after seeing them dance again, you know, having received my invitation. And mm -hmm. they were just such a powerful group of dancers that I was like, oh, you know, I really, really want to be a part of this. Um, and so I went to audition. Uh, after seeing them perform again and when I walked into the audition I was like the I was the only guy in there and I was sitting there going like oh this might not be such a good thing this uh. kind of, and, 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 and you have to understand where I was coming from it's just like they were such a powerful group of women dancing together yeah. I knew that introducing a man would really kind of change that dynamic uh, and being the only man would set up just kind of an awkward dynamic in terms of of the energy that I think that they produced as a group and so, you know, I was leading forward, you know, kind of scooting forward, getting ready to get up and walk out of there. And then Vargas Mason, the other guy, walked in and he's like, sorry, I'm late. It's like, oh, well, there's another guy. All right. Well, at least I'll go through the audition. Well, now it's OK. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, now it's OK. I mean, it's just like I had another guy in there just like and if and if they were going to bring me in, then I had another guy to work with. Um, you know, like I said, just like a, a, a group of women like that produces an energy that's that's uniquely feminine and very strong and you know and this is long before you know the, the the discussions around the patriarchy and all kinds of stuff like that but you recognize that type of energy and it's just i didn't want to ruin that and i figured when the other guy came in at least there was another guy and that if they wanted to have us do something separate but within the context of the group that i could still be a part of something powerful and not really like impact or ruin that that energy that was created by all those women together. So, so Var Vargas uh, appearing sort of gave you permission to uh, to move forward with this. Yeah, yeah, you know, and not feel like so weird or creepy about it. Yeah. Um, and, and creepy is the wrong word. Voyeur. 
Uh, not a voyeur. Uh, I think that there's an amazing energy that's produced when women do things together. Um, and, and they do it on their own terms. And they're kind of pulling from their own creativity and experiences as women. <clears throat> and, you know, especially, especially if it's a, a group of marginalized women. like Yeah, black women. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And see, the, the funny thing about the group is that it was a multicultural group, but mostly black women and led by a black woman. So... So it was, there was, there were some aspects of like marginalized women working together, but it's, they all work together in agreement around the energy and the messages they were trying to put out there in the world, because they were a group of women dancing, you know, and, and, and teaching people about West African culture through dance, and especially about like the strength and the role of women through dance. So, you know, there, there were a lot of things to consider there, and I could... I had talked to somebody else, and this is sort of jumping ahead of the story. And they said they had had men in the group before, but it didn't really quite work out. Um, you know, and so like that was something that I learned a little bit later. But having Vargas show up made me feel like, you know, there were things that we could do maybe ancillary to that group that didn't interfere with that energy, but still contribute to the to the mission of the group as a whole. So it, it gave me a, it gave me a feeling that I could work within that context without actually impacting it in a negative way. So yeah, so I, I auditioned for the group, Vargas and I did, and we got callbacks and we made it. Uh, and that was actually the beginning of six years that I actually spent with the group. Uh, and it went through like a lot of changes. Um, the the our mentor Letitia Williams uh, ended up inviting in these master teachers from different cultures in West Africa to actually teach us these dances. So we actually started receiving a level of instruction that the group hadn't received prior. Um, so that was really something interesting. Uh, and it, it was just really interesting to kind of learn lessons as a band in that, in that sort of situation, because it was, it was really my first exposure to traditional folk and folkloric um, positions or roles of men and women in dance. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, and, and growing up black in America, it, it, doing that type of dance really has, it has an interesting and powerful effect on you. So it was, it was very galvanizing to me in a way, but I ended up spending six years with the company uh, and really, really started taking the dance seriously or the scholarship of the dance very seriously uh, because Letitia, she exposed me to a lot of really great teacher teachers and mentors. Uh, and I start uh, developing a heavier involvement in the dance world. Uh, and so I started learning a lot of lessons about uh, about how folk and folkloric dance in the African diaspora uh, feeds into like the culture itself. Um, so it, it was it was a huge awakening and, it, and the community as a whole was very, very welcoming. Uh, to me, which actually made me want to dig into it more. Like I already had an interest, but knowing that people were really open to more people learning about this dance, and especially more men learning about you know dance, because you know dance and the and some of the institutions and traditions in the United States typically tends to be very female leading. Uh, oh, they were they were yeah they were very welcoming to me as a man. Uh, coming into dance and really taking an interest and really wanting to learn and really develop myself in the dance. So uh, that's that thing as well. Like I, um, I come from a small town in Iowa, 95% um, white people uh -huh. uh, being a white man myself. Like it, 
I, I started with martial arts, uh, much like you did. And huh. I would see my sister's dance. Um, but, and it was something that like was interesting to me, but like, I could never, never like admit to myself that I wanted to do it because we had all these negative connotations about like what that would mean. Right. Uh, right. You know, so to have that, uh, that welcoming presence and that energy and that, that excitement around you being a part of that community must have felt like really validating. Yeah, it was very validating. And, you know, what, uh, one difference, you know, I grew up in a culture where everybody danced, uh, men and women. I just was never seen as very good, you know, and so that's, that was really kind of the background there. I was just never really seen as very good. Uh, okay. But, you know, by getting involved in West African dance, it really kind of gave me a, a clean slate. And like I said, I had always been involved in movement and had the martial arts background um, and really loved music. And I loved dancing. It had gotten better as I had gotten older. But this had become really kind of a new place for me to, to take some ownership and tear myself down and learn things from the ground up with other people who were learning things from the ground up. You know, I, I grew up in a community where where – dance was passed back and forth kind of like trading cards. Oh, do you know this move? Or do you know this move? Have you heard of this dance and stuff like that? And so yeah. people automatically just did it. And, you know, I've always been an introvert. So I did really kind of keep to myself with, with respect to that, but I always moved by myself. Like when I was alone, I would watch movies and I would move. And I was just very, very creative in terms of movement and being silly and stuff like that. But do you think there's anything to the, uh, the idea of blood memory? regarding Dan? You know, I don't know. There, there could be. It's not something that I'm dismissing. But I also know that I grew up in an environment of people constantly moving and expressing themselves through movement, whether it was dance or not. You know, that imitating, yeah. imitating people. I grew up around, you know, people who are really excellent mimics. And they could mimic other people's voices and how they moved and all kinds of stuff like that. It's just kind of like this way of knowing that, you know, somebody was always paying attention to what you did. And expression through physicality was always there. So I think that when, you're, or when you grow up in those environments, you are also kind of absorbing the ways to learn from other people. Um, I feel like everybody comes to movement and comes to dance via a specific path, whether it's in class or growing up in a culture or community, everybody has their own way. Uh, and I, I, I feel like I've seen people move based on the cultures that they grow up in. Oh, yeah. So you, you could see people of different ethnicities carry themselves a different way because they, they might have lived in a group that might not be of their cultural or ethnic background. But they learn the ways that people kind of physically communicate and posture with each other in that culture. And yeah. so, so you meet people is just kind of like, whoa, you know, the way that you move and the way that you like interact reminds me of this culture because that's that's the culture they grew up in. And oh, yeah. physical interaction and physical communication is something that we learn and we absorb just like we do language. So oh, yeah. I feel like all of that was was already in me given how I grew up around that stuff. It's just that, you know, early on as a kid, you get a couple of discouraging remarks. Then, you know, being kind of an introvert, I, I you know, it's just like you get, you get once to shame me, uh, especially as a kid. It's just like, oh, I'll be doing all this on my own. Oh, you know? yeah. But as I got older and got a little more confident in my physical expression, you know, when I started 
delving more deeply into this world of dance, uh, I felt like it was something that I wanted to really dig into and gain a, a little bit better ownership. And then it became this thing where I saw connections in the dance uh, that some people had talked about, but not really many people had talked about. And so I really became interested in this connection between the type of dance that I grew up seeing, you know, and trying to do and mm. the dance that I was actually being exposed to. And as I started connecting the dots, there was this really, really sort of rich history there that I wanted to dig into. So, you know, looping back around to answer your question, that kind of connects like how I got into dance and how I decided to actually start pushing forward with, with learning dance and being in the community with dance. I got you. So that, um, that essentially covers like your basic origins. And a lot of that sounds like was very uh, motivated by West African and whatever you grew up exposed to, like um, in your community. Yeah. yeah. So, like popping for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. So when did you like, when do you feel like you really started to become a part of the, uh, the street dance community as we know it? Uh, that's a good question. So I started teaching a class at a studio uh, called Dance West mm -hmm. uh, back in Boulder. And so that's how I kind of entered into the studio. I entered into the studio because I actually did see other people kind of teaching the dance classes. And I was just kind of like, that's not right. You know, they were passing off something as hip hop that really, in my experience, wasn't that it was more like a like a, a dance exercise class. Oh, um, and yeah. Being a white guy from Iowa, when I finally started dancing, like, guess which classes I was taking? Right, right. Yeah. So I, I looked at that and I was just kind of like, you know, this this is not right. And I and I had the good fortune of uh, meeting a woman uh, named Paula Kitty, who is now married, Paula Kaufman, who was actually teaching a hip hop class there. And we had had some discussions about really that kind of authenticity around it and like the history of these different types of dances. So when she was actually going back to graduate school, she actually asked me to take over and teaching the class for her because she felt like I could bring more of that authenticity in terms of actually really teaching people where the dance came from. Yeah. So I did that and there were, it, it put me in this place where, where I was connected to the dance community in such a way that other teachers were actually coming through town from different places, uh, teaching master classes. And so I was actually able to connect with people on their experience and where they had been coming from. So they had come from larger cities, like uh, a couple of teachers from uh, that had been members of Culture Shock uh, came to teach at Dance West. And so we started mixing it up around dance. Uh, and when, while dancing with Harambe, and teaching at Dance West uh, and really started getting at this age where I was starting to club. Um, mm -hmm. Those things all started to come together to really kind of put me in the dance community, both on the studio front and in the street front, because I would actually dance in clubs. You know, I, I had danced a little bit at clubs growing up, but not a whole lot. Again, you know, referring back to my shyness around dancing. Oh, yeah. Um, but like as I was older and really kind of in this place of being in a dance group and teaching a dance class, I had a little more confidence about dancing in clubs. And it was funny that confidence actually got me challenged uh, to battles out in clubs. So it was, it was interesting. I got in my, my first dance battle out in a club when I was like 22 years old. There um, you go. And so, and, and, 
pretty handily won it because I was also there with some other guys who had eventually come into the dance company into Harambe that I was in. So we had like our African vernacular to pull from, but then we also had kind of like a whole host of other, you know, street club dances to pull from. Like it it is like in the American tradition. So we hit those guys with stuff that they had never seen. And we were actually able to do it coordinated because we could follow each other's leads to, to jump into, you know, to, to jump into dance. So, so they, didn't, they didn't really realize they were starting to fight with like a SEAL Team 6. Right, right, right. <laughs> so they were just kind of like, well, but it, but, but it all ended on a very cool and congenial note. And the guys came up and talked to us afterwards. So it was, it was a lot of fun, but that really kind of, that was my, that was really sort of my emergence, like my, my first introduction into mm-hmm. dance in that sense. Uh, and then it just really kind of developed from there as I met other dancers uh, who also introduced me to other people who had been in kind of the, the Colorado Front Range community that had been dancers for a while. That's really interesting. So um, you talk that you talk about how you've uh, one of your first big uh, introductions to the scene, or the the first time you really felt a part of it was having those having that battle experience in the club, um, and that reminds me of uh, rolling with uh, Archie Burnett godfather of the house of ninja uh-huh. comes to uh, colorado in your events obviously um but he was telling me like when i uh, trained with him in new york by training i meant like you know he, he took me to a club and then drove us uh back to the heights and he was telling me uh the problem with your generation is that you grew up falling in love with the dance but we grew up in the club falling in love with the music you know so right, it all right, right authentically in the club so nowadays like in denver like even before the uh, pandemic broke out, like it was really hard to find a place to con- consistently to go to like, you know, be in a club atmosphere and dance and, and have that kind of social setting, which is so crucial. Like all the OGs are telling us it's so crucial to, uh, to, to really having that authenticity. So yeah. you're saying you actually had a club scene in Denver at one point. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting because the place where I had started dancing, where I had that first battle was this event called. So what? Uh, and it was run by this group called Step On Productions. And this was back when people weren't really doing Tuesday night stuff before mm-hmm. Tuesday night became the blow up night and people all started like putting club nights on there. They, they did it because Tuesday was sort of an off night. You know, it was a great night for underground stuff. Uh, so 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 what was one of the few games in town at the time? You know, there were other places that you could go out to other nights. But, yeah, there was a, there was a time in Denver where you could actually go out and, and dance. You know, uh, Denver's always had a history of that. But I think um, there have been sort of few key places where you could go out and dance that hosted different types of nights. So, like, if you wanted to go out and dance, maybe like hip hop and house and acid jazz and all kinds of stuff like that, the, the number of places that you had were few. Um you know, there there had been a history of places like on the east side, like Norman's, um, which was a which was a spot when I was actually a preteen um, mm-hmm. that people could actually go out to and dance. And there were there were other spots that you could go to, but there wasn't anything quite as underground as so what. Um, so, yeah, there there had been really kind of a club scene in Denver and a lot of people uh, wouldn't really use it to cut their teeth with dance. It was it was a social spot. You know, it wasn't could be. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't really like it wasn't really a spot where just dancers would go. It was a spot where everyone would go to dance. And there's a distinction there, because when I was coming up in that scene, 
you would have people who had been trained dancers dancing along with visual artists, you know, who were social dancers, dancing along with photographers and poets who were all social dancers. So nobody was pushed at the margins. It was part of the culture that we all lived. So it wasn't, it wasn't this modern sense of like super focused, dedicated dancers who do nothing else. So it was, it was definitely a, a place to kind of build and exchange and vibe and really build community. And dance was a part of it. So like breaking like that dance battle that I said that I was in, mm -hmm. that wasn't a regular occurrence. It would happen every now and again. You wouldn't go every week and have a dance battle break out. You would, right. you, you would go every week and you would dance. Occasionally something like that would happen. But that evolved over time. Okay. Yeah, it's just uh, it's it's interesting to hear about the Denver that was uh, before, you know, I even arrived here from California. Um, and I don't know, it's just it's weird in these uh, these weird times that we're living through it at the moment with the uh, COVID-19 scare and, and seeing how everything shut down to hear that uh, just to hear about like these, you know, places that we used to have. Yeah. You know? And it's uh, it's kind of a shame, like. You know, I, I ruminate as I'm um, drinking alone in my closet <laughs> <laughs> about how, um, you know, we, we kind of took all these things for granted uh, before being forced indoors. And I'm kind of interested to see, like, how this is going to affect our community um, once we're finally able to, like, congregate and socialize again. Yeah, yeah, that will be interesting. See. <clears throat> It'll be interesting to see because I, I wonder if the separation and isolation will actually make people want to come together and make them want to come together in that context. Because I still think that people do come together, but I think I, I see more of it in the context of people coming to rehearsal spaces and studios more than I see happening in the club. Yeah. Um, you know, so so that's that's the thing. Uh, I'm talking to people in, I think, kind of like the current sort of central generation of dancers, like a lot of people in their 20s and early 30s. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk to them, the whole concept of really having just kind of the, the social party, you know, where you social dance is really kind of foreign to them. You know, I, I grew up at a time, even when I was a kid, where people would organize parties at their house where people would just come and dance. Like I used to I used to uh, take the entry fee for my cousin who would mm -hmm. who would DJ socials at our house in the garage. So they would clear out the garage and make that a dance floor. The garage door would stay down and then people had to come in through the front door of the house, pay money and then walk through the side door that led into the garage if they wanted to dance. So it was like a little club, um, you know? And so that was the sort of thing. And this is, this is when I was, this is when I was maybe like eight or nine years old, you know, to uh, I'm 48 now. So it gives you like an idea of how far back this goes, um, you know, and it wasn't uncommon when I was in high school for people to have like little get togethers and parties at their house. And we'd go into their basements and they'd have some food. And their parents would like provide us with snacks and stuff like that, the food, but, People would be on stereo duty and they'd play music and it was like a small club. We'd dance and then people would sit on the side. When you weren't dancing, you'd sit on the side. You know, they, they Anyone would, in the uh, Denver street dance community listening, uh, take notes. This is absolutely what we're doing once we're all able to go outside again. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, I mean, it, it was that sort of thing. It's just like you always made what you needed. And the great thing about that is that 
you know, it was something that families felt okay with their kids doing. You could have a party, you could dance, you could do all of that stuff. And you knew your kids were safe, you know, because they were down in the basement, you know, or if they were going to a party, they were going to a party at somebody's house in the neighborhood, you know. So and, and those were those were ways that people would be really kind of creative about putting money in their pocket, you know, charge like two or three bucks at the door, which was a lot of money, you know, back in 1980 when I was nine years old, uh, uh-huh. you know, like 1979, 1980, right around there. And you like have money to go buy records and do all kinds of stuff like that. So it was just there's always been kind of like this this spirit around the culture of the dance where you make what you need. Um, you know, I love that. And I, and I, and I think that that's, that exists in some ways uh, in, in the generation of dancers that are operating now, but uh, not on such a grassroots level. Um, you know, and, and I hesitate to comment on why that might be, because I don't know for sure. I can speculate about it. I mean, there's probably a bunch of reasons. Yeah. I mean, depends on which angle you want to, uh, of the beast you want to attack first. But um, yeah, so bringing things into the present, um, what can you tell me about the Funkinetic project, the, uh, the the thing that you've created for yourself in this in this community nowadays? Yeah, the Funkinetic project uh, for me started really as kind of a, a self serving endeavor. Uh, I started it because I wanted to actually pull together dancers that could teach me, uh, and so it was originally started by bringing together a lot of my peers uh, and Mm. trying to figure out just kind of like practice sessions. And, uh, you know, a couple of events were thrown my way where I could actually pay people to go and we could get out and do performances and stuff like that. But it started initially as really kind of a self-serving endeavor. And then just evolved over time. Um, I started really evaluating what ways I could actually serve the community while serving myself. You know, not not all self-interest is like your individual interest, but your mm. self-interest, your self-interest can actually be making a better community around you, which then in turn. I mean, if, if your community you. stronger, then you become a st- stronger as a result of being a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's that it's that saying the rising tide lifts all ships, um, uh, you know, and that's that's really where I started going with that. There, there's I mean, there's an interesting evolution to, you know, to how that happened, um, you know, like how that like how the, the mission sort of slowly grew and modified over time. Uh, so, you know, in my, in my other life, I'm a software engineer. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was actually working in, in startups during the dot-com boom of the mid to late nineties. Uh, okay. You know, and I grew up the way that I grew up, I was, I was never poor. My parents grew up poor. I was never poor. We were maybe lower middle class, I've never wanted for a meal or having a roof over my head or anything like that. But, you know, I still kind of like on the lower end of sort of the middle class spectrum at the time. So when I when I started working in tech and with with startups, um, it was such a rapidly growing industry. It's something that I was good at. It was like I actually started um, I actually started programming when I was uh, 10 or 11 years old. So, you know, I was I was really kind of ripe to just jump into a situation that where I could leverage my skills uh, and develop them. But it was such a rapidly growing and developing industry at the time that they were just really throwing money at people. You know, it's like I I wasn't making like Silicon Valley money, but I was making at that point more money than I had actually ever seen in my life. You know, it it didn't take long for me to really start out earning my parents. Um, 
So, you know, I was doing that and also still involved in dance and kind of teaching dance at the time. Uh, and really decided um, around 2000 or 2001, 2001 when I left Boulder, that I wanted to move to New York and really study and throw myself into developing dance. But I still have the skills as a software developer so I can actually plug into that industry and support myself doing that because I wasn't trying to go to New York to support myself as a dancer. It was no. way, oh. too, way too competitive. And that's just like I, I didn't have that type of drive with dance to do that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but that's when the, the dot-com bust came. Uh, you know, 9-11 happened, obviously, in 2001. There was a huge effect on our industries. A lot of the software jobs dried up overnight, like literally overnight. Places that were wow. in business one day were shuttered the next day. I called the headhunters I've been working with in uh, New York, and they said, don't come here now. There are no jobs here. We're basically paying ourselves off of placements that we made earlier in the year. Uh, you know, so that that really kind of shifted things a lot in terms of like my earning potential and sort of and stuff that I was going to do. And so I ended up staying in Colorado. And for the next four years of my life from 2002 to 2006, really ended up supporting myself as a dancer because a lot of industries were really feeling the bite. And I still had uh, some of my studio placements and I could actually do outreach work in schools. Just a note, kids, if the uh, software developer thing doesn't work out, you can always support yourself with your fallback plan of being a dancer. That's right. I, I advocate having as many skills as you possibly can, uh, you know, and really by trying to stay sharp on them and bringing them together. It'll bring me to another point later. But, you know, I, I, I made my living for four years. If you can call it much of a living. I really had to, to cinch the belt a lot and live very, very tight. And there were a couple of things that happened to me in those four years. One of them, I ended up uh, developing a hernia and had to get surgery. It had no health insurance. Um, you know, and uh, so I actually ended up having to apply for a, a public health care program called the Colorado Indigent Care Program, which allowed me to get diagnosed and actually have surgery. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's also a tough thing because when you have a hernia and when you've had surgery for a hernia and you're making your living teaching dance, those two don't add up very well. Um, you know, so and there were a couple of times when money was really tight that I was in danger of being put out in the street had it not been for just like the like the kindness of my landlords who were people that were in my social community. But, you know, like I said, there were there were plenty of times they could have like thrown me out in the street, but they didn't. You know, and they were always willing to work with me. So I think it's important to say, too, it's just like the people around you can help you stay afloat, you know, and, and really be good in your relationship, in your communication with them. Definitely something to uh, keep in mind uh, today as we're dealing with this thing, because it's you mentioned 9-11 and it's really funny. I'm, I'm kind of nostalgic for the days before last week where we kind of assumed that, that was going to be the defining point of our generation. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. The <laughs> yeah, I was like, surprise! Here yep. was a, here was a big threat from above, and here's a tiny little threat from below. So, yeah, so I, I managed to live like that for four years, and I got and I got through it, you know, with some hard work and some luck and really some kindness of people around me. But in, in late 2005, early 2006, the economy was restoring itself in such a way that I was actually able to get back into tech, and I mm -hmm. and I literally overnight went from making dancer money to tech money again. Oh. 
it it felt great but you know it 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 i had been learning some lessons about like utilizing money and financial resources when i didn't have it mm-hmm. and so when i started making that money i was actually able to hit the ground running again on an agenda to get myself completely out of debt you know to move towards buying a house and i realized how much i was able to do on how little i had in those mm. four years and so it really became in my interest to try to start supporting artists that way. It's just like artists can do a lot on very little. And I, mm. and I learned that I could actually live on much less money than I was actually making when I got into tech. So mm. I started trying to figure out how I could take some of my resources and create other resources for artists in the community to really lift up the community because I was really possessed of this notion that you know, that, that artists can really kind of bootstrap communities that, that need it. They can be teachers. They can help people kind of develop new relationships. And artists are very good at making the things that they need to, to live from very little. So All my damn people listening, pay attention. So, man is some truth. so with, with, with the money that I was actually making, it's just like, you know what? I, I can't do this all myself, but I can support people who can do this. And mm. so that's really been kind of like my driving impulse behind the Funkinetic project. Um, you know, like I, I started uh, doing performances and getting people together for dance practice sessions while I was making my living as a dancer in that four years. And then after that, it's just like, wow, you know what? I can really change some things. And so incrementally, I've come up with ideas and plans for how I can do that. So one of the biggest uh ideas or, or fruits of that labor that I want to talk about is Disciples of Funk. Yeah. Because uh, that is honestly like one of my favorite events that I look forward to all year. Uh, and for those who have never been uh, or, or who don't know about it, in Denver, uh, DeAndre and the Funkanatic Project put on this event at the end of every February, at the end of every Black History Month, where he brings in um, OGs uh, of so many different um, uh, styles of the dance community. So Archie Burnett, as we mentioned before, uh, godfather of the House Ninja, who teaches uh, whacking and vogue and club style. Uh, we have Quick Step uh, teaching musicality, breaking, um, and uh, Rockefeller, B-Girl Rockefeller, uh, amazingly strong woman um, who teaches uh, B-Girling, as well as Millicent Johnny, who teaches Louisiana Noir, um chester uh whitmore who uh, any of our swing dance listeners will recognize as um you know just one of the most amazing still living sources of knowledge about black vernacular dance in the 20th century uh and then i mean obviously i have to mention uh both king charles and budilla who are a part of my crew creation global or rather i should say i'm a part of their crew as uh, uh, who teach chicago footwork so you have all these uh, courses coming in um teaching about different aspects of black in america and dropping all this knowledge and it is possible because of you and the funkinetic project and what you do uh to provide this resource for the community of denver so yeah disciples of funk um the idea was inspired by uh by a group of dancers who were instructors. All oh, right, sorry, sorry. sorry. One second. Sure. I have to also mention Monsell. Oh. I am so sorry. <laughs> I forgot Monsell. 
uh, a dance scholar in his own right um who just is an amazing uh teacher of hip-hop oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you you gotta yeah, definitely have to listen to monsell because i know he'll be listening in <laughs> yeah so, sorry monsell it was not intentional there's just so many uh so many people i i i forget to mention so my bad yeah respect so um so there were a, a bunch of uh, teachers and older dancers in the community who were really kind of feeling that we had been made less relevant in the eyes of a lot of um, of a lot of dancers who were coming up. Um, you know, there was there was really kind of a, a big cultural shift uh, away from the way that we used to do things, which is which is natural. That's going to happen. I, I feel like people were not really kind of investing themselves in the culture, and they were really kind of putting themselves in some more of the superficial elements of the culture. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also you had this phenomenon where a lot of people would go and take a workshop from a big name and then come back to Colorado and felt like they could teach workshops. That's, that's really weird. So that's absolutely. Yeah. So we decided to enter the battle as we, we entered this battle um, called the block party uh, as an elder group of the yeah at block 1750 so you know we entered this this and it was the first year of the block party before that it had been called worm tank jam but uh you know i had been called and asked if i wanted to be a part of this crew uh and so we decided to come up with the name you know it was like i had pitched the name disciples of funk uh because mm -hmm. so much of what we were doing was kicked off by funk dance you know uh, or not funk dance really funk music um so you had the, the impact of James Brown's music on on funk, P-funk, you know, some elements of disco and all the dance that was involved in that group had been influenced by that. You know, we had a, mm. a B-boy, we had people that locked and popped and did hip-hop uh, and house and all those things in some way, shape or form kind of pulled back to funk as sort of a, a focal point, like this nexus of where the music changed in American history, mm -hmm. and then subsequently influenced the dance. So Disciples of Funk was just kind of the name I threw out because of that. Everybody liked it, so we went with that. So to to shorten the story, uh, we were at we were at the block party, and uh, we ended up winning that battle. Uh, you know, we went through. We battled like there were there were thirty one crews total, and so, yeah, and so we had some fantastic battles there. And we did end up, end up battling everybody, but we basically progressed our way on up uh, to the finals mm -hmm. and won the battle. And uh, it was cool. We were like all, all older dancers, and they were offering like a $500 prize for the battle. And we basically all had our own jobs and stuff like that. It's just, you know, why take this money? So we won, and we gave the money back. And that, I mean, they mm -hmm. achieved a couple of things. We, in the battles that we had, I think we're, were a little more reassured that people's hearts and minds were probably in a better place than we had thought going into that. You know, there were mm -hmm. people that were really investing themselves in the culture. So that, that was eye opening to us. Uh, I think we communicated well uh, the relevance of older teachers and dancers and really trying to connect people to that history uh, and culture of the dance. Um, you know, and it, it was, we, we, I think one of the best things that we did there is that we were visible. Um, I feel like a lot of older dancers complain about the younger generation, but they're invisible. It's just like, you've, you've got to be out there and be present, you know? Yeah. You know, you've, you've got to be out there. You've got to be present. You've got to start learning things on their terms. 
especially if you want them to learn things on your terms, because you can always be educated. As the dance evolves, people are creating new things. And they have new stories. And you're there as a person who can connect and guide. That doesn't mean you have to lead or control, you know, but um, a perfect example. I was on a panel once and I was with, uh, with Buddha Stretch, uh, Amelia Austin Jr. And, uh, and Pop and Pete, uh, Timothy Solomon. And, yeah. and there was this question that was asked about like, where hip hop is and stretch made the statement about like hip hop is really the youth and it's the youth culture and it's controlled by like, it's, it's controlled by the youth. It's a thing that's produced by the youth. And Papa Pete was saying, it's just like, you know, with all due respect, we leave young people alone too often to figure things out on their own. And Mm. Listening to both of them, I, I didn't feel like those two things were mutually exclusive, that older dancers, we can be guiding forces in the lives of younger dancers, enabling them to make mm-hmm. the decisions that they need to make based on the environment that they're in. We don't have to control it. you know. So I, I know I go a little bit back and forth around like what my perception sometimes can be of younger dancers, but I truly believe that as older dancers, we need to be mentors and not controlling it. We provide resources, we provide guidance, and we try to guide them through making the, their decisions, you know, which is really what any elder is supposed to do. You know, at a certain mm-hmm. point, we have to be focused on living our own lives, and we guide people you know, to try to make better decisions about living theirs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so with that done, you know, the, the name Disciples of Folk came, and the, the fact that like all those the, the dancers came together, the few of us that came together uh, for that group, we all came from different places. We were affiliated with different crews, uh, you know, at different studios. And in the face of that, I was just like, I want to celebrate what we did. So like I named the festival Disciples of Funk in honor of that, you know, like a year after that happened, because it was just kind of like, there's a model there for bringing people together. You know, the, the, the Colorado dance community can be very pro, like fractured and provincial. Like people want to stay in their parts of town and they want to stay in their studios and people get a little bit better about coming out now, but it's still kind of fractured. And I wanted to create a festival that allowed me to accomplish a couple of things. I could bring in teachers that I had met in my travels uh, so that I could actually take classes, you know, that they could teach me. Uh, I mm-hmm. could provide good resources to the community here at large, you know, about learning the dance and the history of the culture. Um, And I could also provide a a platform for a discussion uh, that I don't think has had a whole lot in street and club dance. Uh, I feel like with a lot of modern street and club dance uh, that the dance is made primarily black and it's made primarily male. Uh, And you you see that in hip hop, you see that, uh, you know, like with social hip hop, you see that with breaking, you see that in a lot of places, but I feel like the, the stories of women and Latinos and the LGBTQ community are minimized now. Uh, and that can mm. be for all kinds of reasons. I think that whenever somebody wants to make hip hop exotic, you know, they make it about black men. When they want to make it feared, they want to make it about black men. You know, you have these two narratives that are going on at the same time. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah. And it, also, it's it's a weird uh, kind of dichotomy as well because uh, not not to contradict what you're saying, but also we have a, a separate uh, agenda going on today that's felt in a lot of the street dance communities where 
the black roots of this dance are also sort of being erased yeah. to make yeah. room multicultural like oh we all created hip-hop. right but it's like uh back up yeah. man. we did not most of us are gay culture like black people in america who created yeah us. and i and i've betrayed a deep of that discussion because it is it is black people but when you talk about black people are you only just talking about black men they're black women and like are you talking about just like you know cis and hetero men and women well no the lgbt community lgbtq community has been pivotal in creating this you know Absolutely. I know House because House had an origin in gay clubs in Chicago and through its, you know, through its evolution and its migration across the United States, I was able to learn that from other people that grew up in that tradition. And the fact that I can actually teach that, you know, is due in large part to the fact that it was started somewhere by a specific group of people. And I never want to obscure that, you know. Absolutely. And that's that's a, another shame that you see in, uh, in uh, mostly through social media nowadays because it's the 21st century. But you still see people who, uh, by and large, do good work for the, the street dance community, like they have their own uh, apparel brands, for example. Right. And they'll, they'll claim to be for all members of the community and at the same time, like disparage trans people. Yeah. And it's like, yo, without transgendered black people like a lot of the dances that we celebrate would not be right. here uh out of the 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 fashion that we take our cues from a lot of the the slang that we use the music like it, it it's been it's been shaped by these these marginalized people and to see uh otherwise upstanding members of our community like just talk trash or mock them or this or that is really heartbreaking yeah. because it's like where be without them? right Exactly. This stuff wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have these things that we love. And personally, in a period of my life where I had nothing else, I made a living from it. You know, so it's just like I I, I never want to be a force muting that history or muting that voice, you know, and then hip hop as a whole culture is a co-creation between, you know, black people and Latino people. And then there's overlap because Latino is a culture, you know, and that includes black people as well. You know, but it's, Afro. yes, it's like Afro Latino and you would you would not hip hop would have taken a very different shape if it had been only Latino people or only black people like in the African-American vein. You know, it was the influence of those cultures and that proximity together that created hip hop the way that it is, you know, so mm -hmm. those are all things that I actually like to bring forward in Disciples of Funk, you know, uh, and then have that discussion with all of those teachers, because what's interesting too, you know, as I, as I pull together teachers with, with different ethnic backgrounds and different generations and gender and stuff like that, they have a discussion where they actually end up a lot of times teaching each other things that they didn't know. And I like being there and being able to sit, you know, at the table hearing that discussion. Oh, it's a beautiful thing to anybody who uh, goes to the event or has not been to the event or goes, but has not been to this particular part of it. Like I, that my favorite aspect of every Disciples of Funk is that we have a panel discussion with all of the masters and every time, like they will say things that just set my blood on fire and just, just like, it, it's this massive epiphany or bomb that gets dropped on you every time. And it, it, attendance has been like low, particularly for the, uh, the panel, which is an absolute shame because people just want to go to these classes without like, um, really going deep into what it means to be a part of this community, which is what you get in the panel. Exactly. Um, 
we will be putting a lot of that stuff online in the future too. I just want to kind of let that know. We're talking to some of my videographers about uh, what can really come out of that because I'm a firm believer in really archiving a lot of this stuff. Uh, as I learn it, I want to make it available to other people. That'll be particularly useful now that we're all stuck indoors and we got the time to watch. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> we could hopefully we could uh, get it online before the cage doors are open again. Yeah, I yeah. know, right? Uh, that that uh, brings me to, I guess, the next part because we only have a little bit of time left, and I there's two questions left that I really want to uh, to to get okay. to. Uh, the first being like right now, in, in the interest of community, you've you've stayed very consistent. So um, in in these past couple of weeks, uh, you've started a Facebook group. Um, I forget the name. It's like the community quarantine yeah. group, um, where you are pulling, you're pooling together resources. You're letting like, you know, a bunch of people in the community, um, not even just dancers, just like anybody in this community, uh, who needs something or can provide something or, you know, just, just has information to share. You're giving them a central spot where we can all like communicate and, and help each other out. Um, how do you see our dance community uh, adapting to this pandemic? Um, I'm seeing a lot of creativity, uh, in the dance community. Um, you know, people are basically trying to figure out ways to actually connect with each other via dance using the technology that we have. And I feel like people are being fairly successful about it. Like, I think this podcast is one perfect way. Uh, I've been seeing people kind of go outside in their house, like at, in front of their houses and just doing kind of like little freestyle, uh, videos that they post online and allow people to kind of respond and do stuff like that. Uh, I think going back to what I said about artists, uh, a lot of the people that actually have helping with me, uh, helping me on that Facebook group, uh, it's Community Quarantine Colorado, uh, are artists. Uh, they're writers, uh, you know, they are playwrights and producers and all kinds of stuff like that who all happen to be social media savvy and have just spontaneously organized to help me do this. And so that's been pretty amazing. But I think artists are going to do what they have been doing. Uh, and that includes dancers finding ways to connect people even at a distance. And I'm seeing lots of examples of that now. Mm, that's amazing. So how do you predict things are going to change for us uh, when we reach the other side of this thing? Ooh. If you can't, I mean, no one yeah, knows. That's, that's <laughs> difficult because we're going to have a new normal that we're going to have to deal with. I think initially there's going to be some trepidation because there's always going to be this worry you know that we're not completely safe from contagion yet but i think mm -hmm. gradually you're going to almost see not necessarily a backlash but a surge of people wanting to be in places together and connected to each other after being separated for so long like i saw somebody post today about how they were angry you know that people who are married with children are preaching about you know about social distancing you know, and how to maintain your mm -hmm. social distance where people who are unmarried and don't have kids are basically having to hold up a load. And, you know, that's real. I mean, I, I can totally identify with that. I am, I mean, not to get too much into my thing, but I'm uh, polyamorous myself. So right now I have three different partners and I, we are all isolated from yeah. each other. It's this uh, crazy thing where you, you spend your life kind of building like all these important people uh, to be around you. Um, and then you are caught in this, this situation where it's like, okay, if I really care about these people, I have to keep away. Yeah. From them. And that's, 
Right. See, luckily I have I have a fantastic lady in my life, and we live together. So hey, there like, you go, man. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an introvert, <laughs> so I could probably like I could probably do it pretty much alone. But I'm glad to have her here. You know, that's yeah. I'm just glad to have her in my life. Period. You know, but I'm I'm glad to have her here during this time because even being introverted, we take care of each other. And I, I love that she's here to take care of me. And I'd be going a little crazy if I if I was in a position where I couldn't take care of her during this. So, for those listening, find ways of taking care of each other, even if you can't be in the same yeah. space. Uh, all right. So finally, um, if you, especially in these troubled times, if you could have your own billboard and set it up someplace in the city where like thousands of people would see it every day what would you say or what, what's the message you would want posted on that billboard uh through good times and bad times we all get through this together uh, our mm. humanity is the most important thing mm. absolutely well um that is that is a beautiful note to end this uh, this first episode on uh and also i wanted to do this at the beginning it was a little more appropriate at the beginning but i got i was so excited because it's the first <laughs> one uh i want to end with a toast because this is drinking and dance at the end of the world so uh if you have anything left or just you know pretend for my sake that you do because i saved my last little bit of uh moscow I still do. <laughs> um all right cool well then let us raise our glasses uh, to the end of the world. To the end of the world. Cheers. Ah, all right, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, we will be, be back uh, as soon as possible with more interviews and more angles of this story of uh, our shared collective dance community um, while we uh, just do our thing to, to keep making. So, um, in the meantime, keep doing your thing, keep creating, and um, we will endure. We will grow and we will overcome. God bless. This episode of Drinking and Dance at the End of the World was written and produced by me, Rob Celtic. Music for this episode was provided by the one and only Feathers. That's F-T-H-R-S. You can find more of his work on Spotify and Bandcamp under Feathers. If you like what you heard and want to support the show, stay tuned for our upcoming Patreon page, as well as links to how you can help support each of our guest dancers during this time of global upheaval. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.